Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. Okay, welcome to another episode of Zoomcron. I'm your host, Travis Mateer, aka William Skink. Um, and I will be the only host today. Um, opposite the table is again empty, so Tim Adams. Um, my co-host for many, many episodes um, is currently incommunicado, so I'm giving him his space, and I'm hoping that at some point he will reach out. It's you know, I, I like talking. I like having another person on the other side of the table um, to talk to, because when it's just me talking, it's a lot less engaging, a um, lot less coherent. So bear with me as I do a kind of long intro into a interview that is coming up that I've already posted. So uh, I'm going to be reposting Ed Opperman, private investigator, um, radio hosts, doing all kinds of fun and crazy things that Opperman. Um, I've been a huge fan of Ed Opperman for, for probably a couple of years now as I've been more intently listening to different podcasters. And Ed Opperman kind of has the true crime genre um, as one of his main focuses, I would say in my opinion. And he also does some stuff on like things like SRA, so Satanic Ritual Abuse. Um, he got into topics like the, the West Memphis Three, a um, uh, lot of interesting stuff that I have listened to Opperman interview topics over the years. And so I will be happy and excited to be bringing that one back. But of course, synchronicities is something I am interested in. Um, and I there's been a lot happening in the past week, uh, just all kinds of interesting stuff that I'm not going to get into specifically, but as I was looking at the Ed Opperman interview, I actually posted the interview on August 29th, 2021, and that is the same day that Johnny Lee Perry was shot and killed by sheriff deputies who still have not been named, and it is currently December 14th, 2021. Um, and so I actually posted the Opperman interview on the day that Johnny was shot and killed. And I believe that, I think that comes up in the interview. I haven't really listened to it before posting, but it's just one of many things swirling around. Uh, and Johnny Lee Perry is actually the reason I'm going to be doing a bit of a longer introduction to this, this upcoming interview with P.I. Ed Opperman. And that's because I have information that I got from the Missoula County Sheriff's Department last week, I think it was last week, um, that really no one else has, no one else has reported. Um, and I now have a better understanding why it has taken so long for um, the officer-involved shooting of Johnny Lee Perry to make it to a state agency, DCI, that's the Department of Criminal Investigation. I now understand why it's taken so long. and so. Um, that information that is new, that has not been reported by any local media outlets that I am aware of, um, is the fact that Johnny Lee Perry was involved in an incident with the machete that it was reported he was wielding when he was shot. 
Um, but he was involved in an incident with someone else. That's it. I don't know who that someone else is. Um, I suspected there were more people out there. I have information I can't relate directly right now uh, from a source, um, someone I know from the Pavarello days. And, and so I had a sense that there were some other people out there, but it was confirmed that because the sheriff's department um, had to do an investigation of a prior incident involving Johnny Lee Perry, I would assume his machete, and some other unnamed person, um, that they had to do that investigation first before the officer involved shooting um, could be sent to a state agency for their investigation. So um, I also spoke with someone at DCI involved with talking to media, because that's me, citizen journalist, um, without a budget. You can always give me a donation, though. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, but I, I did confirm with DCI that, that they now have the case. So they are doing an investigation. My understanding is after they do an investigation, um, it is sent to the county attorney's office. And I very explicitly told the person at DCI I spoke with on the phone about my extreme confidence that I have in the Missoula County Attorney's Office under Kirsten Pabst. And by extreme confidence, um, I'm shaking my head up and down. You can't see it because this is a podcast. But um, that's indicating that I actually don't have hardly any confidence at all in the county attorney's office, um, especially after I saw a portion of a, of a coroner's inquest um, into the shooting and death of Stephen Gill. Um, that's a, a, a man who was shot in a, I think, RV um, four times in the back and neck by two officers standing above him um, as he was kneeling by a toilet. Uh, did that get reported widely in our local media? Fuck no, it did not. Weird. Weird. Weird how that stuff just doesn't get in local media. Um, it's not weird at all when you start understanding, like I have in the last couple of weeks, some of the some of the deep, deep connections local media has um, with intelligence. But I'm not just making that up. I confirmed um, from looking... <laughs> At a, at, into John Talbot, father of Pete Talbot, um, one of my former bloggers at 420 Blackbirds, who now I would kind of consider an adversary, kind of because he threatened to sue me, um, just because I wrote about his, his love of bourbon, which is no secret. Um, but what I didn't know is that John Talbot was former CIA when he, when he came, I think, 1957, um, and you know married into a family that had a big stockholder in Lee Enterprises, the corporation that recently fended off a corporate offer by Alden Capital. Exciting shit going down here in the zoo. Um, but yeah, no, Pete's dad, CIA, from my understanding, is nearing the end of his life at the age of 91. And I know that because Pete took some time away from the bedside of his um, dying father uh, to, to do some like virtue signaling comments. Really kind of fucking pathetic. Um, but I, I appreciate Pete giving me the opportunity to remind him that the family of Sean Stevenson didn't get a chance to say goodbye to their loved one when he was removed from life support on January 5th, 2021 without his family being notified. Uh, the coroner, who is also the sheriff, yeah, the sheriff deputy was in there as the coroner, um, but no family member. So uh, think about that, Pete, over your next glass of fucking bourbon. Where are we going from here? Let's see. We got about eight minutes now into the introduction. Um, I can't recall how long my conversation is with Ed Opperman, but 
it was such a joy to speak with someone that I have listened to. And one of the things I do know that Ed shared um, is how basically the Lord worked in his life. Um, amazing story that I didn't know the details of. And he gets into the, the short version of um, how he happened to be transporting a truckload of cannabis and was facing some pretty serious charges and and so many weird little details in the criminal justice system worked to his benefit inexplicably and he absolutely saw the power of of christ in his life and, and acted accordingly made some changes um something i can certainly appreciate as i continue to not drink alcohol yeah um and so uh really interesting and and getting me thinking about some of the, the stuff that I have coming up in 2022, since we're almost to a new year. Um, but one of the things that's been dawning on me, so I mentioned Johnny Lee Perry, that new information. Um, if, if listeners probably, if you're just listening to this without any context, Johnny Lee Perry is significant in some of the work I'm doing here locally in Missoula because he is the alleged assailant of Sean Stevenson. And so Sean Stevenson um, was using uh, homeless services at the Pavarello Center. I'm saying ah a lot. I'm going to try and stop doing that. Sean Stevenson was using services at the Pavarello where I previously worked and was allegedly assaulted by Johnny Lee Perry on January 3rd, 2020. And then, like I said, was removed from life support two days later without his family being notified, family mostly in Texas. And I've since spoken with the family at, at length. Um, my first interview was with the Stevenson sisters, Jayshell and Angela. And we continue to just have questions that don't have really good answers about investigations. Um, a, lot of, a lot of details that the general public really doesn't know. And I hope at some point some of these stories can be shared. Um, I don't know if there's a, any kind of direct connection with the missing person, Rebecca Barsati. Um, I've also done some recent work in podcast form and in writing form, and there, I'm sure, will be more information. Um, I also confirmed with DCI that Rebecca Barsati's case is now with, with that state agency. So, and that was something the family requested multiple, multiple times. So, okay, I think we will probably leave it there unless I can think of anything else. There is a topic that I will be getting into at some point. Um... Dean Reiner has been doing amazing work when it comes to a topic that really kind of bugs me out. And, and part of what's been bugging me out, I'll get into this just briefly, but last week as I was losing communication with someone that I considered a friend and, and value and want to speak with again at some point, I actually listened to a conversation that I recorded with Tim Adams on April 28th. And that is the day that I first met in person Johnny Lee Perry. So I spoke with Johnny Lee Perry on April 28th, and I re-listened to the conversation. I never made that public. Um, I recorded that the day of because I wanted to document my impressions, what had been going on that day. And so I listened to that last Monday, and, and new details have come out in terms of a book that I'm trying to locate. And so I'm going to make this request to anyone listening because it's a book that really kind of, you know, bugged me out a bit when I read it, and now I can't find it. It's I think I've hidden it from myself, and I only knew the, the name of the author's first name, so Sam. I knew it was Sam because I wrote a poem about it, uh, about starseeds and, and Sam being this weirdo. 
and I could not remember the title, could not remember the last name, but when I listened to this conversation on April 28th that I recorded with Tim Adams, Sam Perkins is the guy's name. So you'd think I would be able to find this book, but it's one of these weird, obscure, probably, you know, limited printing books. Well, I, I can't find any 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 evidence of it existing online so i, I and I'm, i haven't done a huge exhaustive search pretty much just abe 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 books and ebay but but i can't find a copy of this um i do know that the this i think the the most of the book was first put out there on through pastebin i think it was around 2013 or 2014 at the website rigorous intuition so I found that long time ago. I've been looking and looking at rigorous intuition. I've, I've found some interesting posts, but and I've documented that. Um, but that's going to be for a later episode. So, okay, I do believe I have spoken enough, and we are now going to be listening to me, Travis Matier, interviewing private investigator, radio host, all-around good guy, Ed Frigging Opperman. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. Okay, I am here with Ed Opperman of the Opperman Report, um, also emailrevealer.com and so many other things that if I start getting into the, the vast history of, of Ed Opperman, I might start sounding a little too gushy. And um, I don't want to do that. I want to give Ed a chance to talk a bit about himself for listeners of my small little po podcast that might not know him. So Ed, thank you so much for being here today. And why don't you tell listeners just a bit about yourself and where you're coming from? Well, thank you, Travis. Thank you for having me here. Um, like you said, my name is Ed Opperman. I'm a private investigator. Uh, I host a little radio show Monday to Friday, uh, AM, FM radio, uh, five nights a week. Eight, nine, ten o'clock, depending on what city you're in. Um, I'm also a private investigator and a digital forensic investigator. So uh, I do all the regular stuff that PIs do: asset searches, locates, background reports, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, litigation preparation, criminal defense, uh, but also do uh, uh, some digital forensics, where people will send me cell phones and computer hard drives, and will capture the information off the device and create an exhibit that can be used in court. And, and you were really at the forefront of that technological shift. And that really gave you this sort of window and little niche into some really fascinating halls of power. Um, going, even going back to when you were a yippie back in the day on the East Coast. Um, I mean, your, your biography is just really fascinating. For anyone that's not familiar, um, you have a book that people can purchase about being a PI that comes with a good kind of brief uh, introduction to, to you. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to have you here because um, you are one of the few people that I can talk to um, about the really fun topics of like satanic ritual abuse and Aleister Crowley or Crowley, however you want to pronounce his last name, the, the psychopath. Um, and, and most of the people that I, I try and engage in these conversations, they might come from a more you know, non-educated Christian background. I don't want to bash that at all because I know you did this amazing tent revival stuff. Yeah. And so you identify from a Christian perspective, but you know, some of your guests that I've listened to talk about the difficulty of getting some of this subject matter, you know, into the, the topics, even among Christian congregations. And I'm coming from being an artist, um, once upon a time, loving the counterculture and the grunge music scene. And then people like Dave McGowan ruined me. And, and so now the reason I kind of got your attention is because, you know, Eddie Vedder got my attention recently by going to um, Obama's birthday bash in Martha's Vineyard. 
Um, and in kind of looking into um, to Eddie Vedder's brief background, I noticed that he had done a performance with Damien Eccles in 2018 at the Neptune in Seattle. And I was just, well, disappointed. Again, one of my um, kind of musical idols is, is associating with someone that if they haven't listened to you or other podcasts getting into the actual case details of the West Memphis Three, they might just watch the documentaries from our popular culture icons and think that, you know, heavy metal was the reason why these three boys were arrested, you know, back in the day. And so I wanted you to maybe discuss that case just a bit from your perspective um, for people that are not familiar with it. Yeah, Eddie Vedder was one was a longtime supporter uh, of these three killers. Okay. Yeah, for people, yeah, oh yeah, way long uh, before recently. Gotcha. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with this, uh, there was a, a series of murders in, in West Memphis, Arkansas, way back in the 90s. And uh, the, the whole town was shook into the core. Um, the police investigated. There was a young man named Damien Eccles who had talked about wanting to do this. Uh, there was another a man, uh, Jesse Muskelly, who confessed to doing this several times. Uh, af after their arrests and their convictions, they also made admissions and all kinds of uh, uh, statements of guilt. Uh, but what happened was uh, a documentary, well, not even a documentary, an HBO reality TV show called Paradise Lost uh, went down there to, to Ark in West Memphis, Arkansas, this little town, and uh, started filming a, 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 everyone in town, all the victims, all the families, the, the killers. And uh, they presented a, a, a HBO film uh, with music by Metallica. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. You got to wonder how they got the rights to that, right? Right. Low budget effort there. And, and they tried to, they didn't even do such a great job with the first one of uh, question, uh, casting doubt on the guilt of these young men. Right. Because uh, even at the very end, Eccles is talking about how he wants to be known as the West Memphis boogeyman. You know, <laughs> he was still uh, uh, egging people on and bragging about his crimes. Wow. Uh, but it shed enough doubt that it started, spawned a group called the West, the WM3.org. Kathy Bakken, Burke Souls, and Chris Worthington, uh, who raised a bunch of money. They ran a, a website, a, a message board, and raised a ton of money to raise awareness. You know, it didn't go for any kind of defense fund or anything like that. Uh, later on, they had another fund that went to commissary for these killers. Oh, wow. And, uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of it went to, you know, buy shoes and purses and stuff for TV appearances and things like that, hair and makeup. Uh, and uh, so I, that's what I got involved way back then. Because okay. uh, I watched this film and I thought maybe they were innocent. I started reading all this stuff on WM3.org and I thought maybe they were innocent. Right. Yeah. So I, at the time, I was in daily contact with Art Bell. Oh, excellent. Art Bell from Coast to Coast. Coast to Coast. And he was having some problems with some guys online. And I was helping him mediate that situation. He had a big lawsuit against uh, Robert Stevens and John David Oates. That's right. Mm -hmm. And somehow I got mixed up in the middle of that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> And I became a witness and I, I got and put an affidavit of my experience with Oates. I helped negotiate with Oates and, uh, and wound up getting a, a settlement in that case. Mm -hmm. But I was in touch with Bell every day. And so I started telling him about these West Memphis Street guys. Hey, you should have him on the show. And when I talked to Burke Sauls about that, he says, oh, yeah, especially because uh, Art Bell's wife was wicked. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to be on that show, especially the one with the wicked. You know, that was what I was really <laughs> interested in. Yeah. So I, after dealing with these characters, you know, I, I could see that they, uh, they weren't very credible folks. And, and I believe that even back then, they all knew that they were guilty. 
you know, it's just so it's so fascinating to me because the subject matter is hard to sometimes take seriously because um, the the language and sophistication of people that are are looking critically at some of this stuff isn't always there. Um, and people like you and William Ramsey have done such a great job, I think, of raising the profile of um, the role of Aleister Crowley, the OTO. And so that it's not just, you know, some guy's image on a Beatles album for, for people. It's an understanding that there is um, a certain amount of, of, of power. And, and I don't want to get reactionary as an artist um, to say that, that the, the range of people's experience in spirituality should be limited. You know, you mentioned Wicca and paganism. You know, I don't want to have that kind of cliche Christian reactionary suppression of, of that kind of stuff. But I also... Um, don't want to just engage without any kind of understanding that the spiritual matters are real um, and you can invite some really dark, dangerous stuff into your life. And, and you seem to have a respect for that, but also a way to be rational and having conversations about it. How did you arrive at that ability? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, uh, <laughs> um, as far as it pertains to Eccles right. and this through here, um, when I first was exposed to the other side, the, the guilty side of this, yeah. uh, it was Sean Wheeler. Okay. OK, who was ruling the roost over there at uh, Usenet, uh, debating everybody single-handedly, pretty much. Uh -huh. I knew the facts of this case better than anyone. And I think I did the first radio show with him when I had him on the show, that really poor audio broadcast, the first one I did on West Memphis 3. Mm -hmm. um, but even Sean never didn't want to realize, didn't want to focus on the fact that this was a cult motivated, this was a ritual sacrifice. And, and, and they think, well, because it, there was no candles and there was no altar and they were, they were enchanting, there wasn't a ceremony, but it, it's not, it doesn't work that way. You can still tap into that energy, yeah. okay? And, and still uh, obtain the results that you want uh, just from a simple murder, just, uh, and, and just being tapped into all that stuff. Well, why, why do you think Sean didn't want to engage in that? Is it the fear of mockery or the fear of yeah. just being discredited just by engaging with the subject matter? Exactly. Because what happened was way back in those days, um, they would, the, the, the average supporter would say, well, I listened to Metallica. I never killed anybody. I wore black t-shirts. I never killed anybody. And then as time went on and you got to know these people, they practically did kill people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they were losing custody of their kids. There was this one woman who she was a stripper and her boyfriend uh, did a suicide on the steps of the strip joint. Oh, this, wow. uh, yeah, the supporters were a, a, a nasty crew and they still are to this day. Now, but if you if you sort of talking about just the blood drinking uh, involved with this bunch, there's no doubt Eccles was involved in blood drinking. Okay, we have witnesses, an, an right. animal sacrifice. We have witnesses, uh, polygraphs. Uh, Dominique Tier, uh, she said, I drink blood. My mother drinks blood. There's nothing wrong with that. Her cousin, uh, TJ Tier, was a spokesperson for vampirism, big time vampirism in, in Transylvania. Okay, yeah. she, ran, <laughs> she ran a magazine on the topic, okay? So when you would start saying, hey, these guys were drinking blood, they were involved in vampirism, the supporters would say, oh, yeah, and they're werewolves and they're Frankenstein, too, as well. They would Exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't until you mentioned Ramsey a couple of times. And me and Ramsey are really the only ones who brought the focus back to the original uh, uh, motive for this case, which is no doubt was an occult motivation. Yeah. Well, you know, it is it is funny to hear the sort of, you know, blood drinking and, and just knowing that people listening um, will have this revulsion to 
to even just a term like that. But one of the things that I've said to people in just personal conversations over and over is like, listen, I'm not trying to get you to believe in this stuff. I am saying if people with power and influence believe in this, then you should take it seriously. And when we're talking about not just the occult, but then the money that starts flowing in to, um, to support the legal efforts to get someone out. I mean, someone from your perspective that understands the criminal justice system much better. I mean, I've also worked at, the, at a homeless shelter for many years. So I've worked with people on probation and parole, and I've kind of understood a bit better from the, the boots on the ground perspective um, what money does in the criminal justice system, what happens when you have it or don't. And, and so when you start putting some of these factors together, pop culture and the occult, um, what now has become a pretty well-versed uh, range of symbolism that's used, um, but it's still hard to have a serious conversation um, about these, these sort of core foundational beliefs that go back to Crowley, L. Ron Hubbard, Jack Parsons. I mean, people that are involved in Scientology, um, Jack or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Jack, in Jack Parsons' case and, and real serious cultural influence that seems to be actually coming up to the surface now with Netflix shows about Son of Sam. But um, staying focused on Eccles a bit, what, what was your experience then as people are coming out of the woodworks against you? Um, I'm really interested in the troll kind of behavior since I, I, I may you know, trigger some of that if I'm talking about this subject matter. So what was your experience with the trolls? Well, my first experience was uh, when I first got involved with these people is uh, I had just had a baby. It was around 2000. Okay. Oh, and I, okay. Just had, I had just had my baby daughter was just born. And it was those first few months when you can't even take a shower, you can't even make a sandwich, you know? So I was trying to hire a babysitter yeah. to come and just keep an eye on my kid while I took a shower. And so when they found out what my email address was, they searched my email address and they found this six month old or nine month old ad I had placed online looking for a babysitter. Oh and I no. Thought, oh yeah, I start getting emails uh, oh. trying to uh, arrange an appointment to come visit me at my home. Okay, now you mentioned before emailrevealer.com. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. so I know a little something about email tracing and locating and identifying people from an email address. Yeah. So here I place this little ad in a Henderson, Nevada uh, online message board, and I'm getting messages from people in Texas, people in Arkansas, people in, in Nashville, Tennessee, wow. wanting to come to my home uh, to help babysit my kid. So that's when I first realized what I was dealing here with these folks. That is a boundary crossing situation. I mean, in my work at the shelter, I had a schizophrenic woman send letters to my home. She found my home address somehow. So I understand that personal violation. Um, but, but that was, you know, after some, some amount of time and kind of being more familiar with the potential risks of dealing with unstable people. Um, for, for you, it seems like that quickly just was at your doorstep almost. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty freaky. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend, especially uh, when I was really into these online debates, yeah. <laughs> I tend to attract a lot of attention to myself right away. And, you know, I have to come to a quick wit, you know, and kind of a, and I had, I know a yes, lot of, the, yeah, so I kind of upset people right away. And I don't, you know, take a lot of nonsense either when it's just online, you know, right. but then when they start crossing the line, trying to get into your house, uh, that's a whole different story. Wow. So, so you, you start early on then bringing a different kind of awareness to this case and attracting that kind of attention. Um, yeah. I mean, do, do you want to discuss some of the broader Im implications of satanic ritual abuse or even like the satanic panic? Because, you know, this case comes on the heels of the satanic panic, um, the whole Presidio case. Um, and that's another case in which you yourself 
came across like primary evidence um, from someone that you found and contacted about the basement and all of that. I don't know if you wanted to, to touch on any, any of that because that's a whole nother topic. But I mean, your work has uncovered some amazing perspectives um, and talked to some people with primary experience in these in these situations. Right. What you're talking about there is the McMartin preschool case. Mc, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. It yep. was in Presidio. That's and, right. That's uh, right. Right. Although, you know, I'm in little contact with all these people. But what happened was uh, in the beginning of the McMartin preschool uh, case, um, there was a, a, a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. And uh, some of the kids started coming up with the STDs, okay, right. sexually transmitted diseases. And uh, one of the parents took the kids to a doctor, you know, it was diagnosed. The words started getting around amongst the families. Uh, they made police reports, cops started going to different families, contacted them. So what happened was early on, uh, the families had hired Ted Gunnerson to look into this, the former FBI director of the LA. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Ted Gunnerson. That's uh, right. Ted Gunnerson. And then ultimately, he began dating one of the moms and living on her couch in her house. <laughs> right. <laughs> Typical, right? Um, <laughs> so Ted brings in this guy uh, who was an, uh, a geologist with ground penetrating radar. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, these kids are talking about tunnels over here. I want you to go down there and search this whole area with your equipment and see if you can find any tunnels. So the guy goes down there and he's looking around for tunnels. He can't find anything. Uh, but uh, when he gets the detached garage on the property, because everyone was still talking. Some of the kids were still attending school there. This is way, way, way at the beginning. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah the, 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 um, McMartins hadn't been arrested. They, not, none of that had happened yet. Okay. So they said to the McMartins, uh, Peg, Peggy, uh, whatever, um, and says, hey, uh, is this garage yours or is it the neighbor's? And I says, oh, that's the neighbor's garage. We have nothing to do with that garage. Mm -hmm. So years later, when the trial's over, uh, they had given up their property to one of the attorneys as part of the legal fees. They'd surrendered the property. And now it was being raised to develop the property. They put out, there's like a dry cleaners there now. Mm -hmm. So my friend went back, okay? All this time, people were saying, oh, the, the DA, the prosecutors brought in this guy with the uh, ground penetrating radar and he could find nothing. Right. All right. Well, I contact the guy. No one's contacted this guy in 30 years. Okay. No yeah. one's tried to. Okay. And um, he tells me, he says, hey, I went back there and I saw with my own eyes a hand dug room and a hand dug staircase underneath the detached garage. And he says, he says to me, he says, all you got to do, Ed, is go down and get those uh, uh, grading records and the, uh, uh, you know, all those zoning records and stuff. He says, that's going to be in the reports when you go get that. Later on, FBI does a document dump and they have their handwritten note in the upper right corner, no, upper left corner, entrance to tunnel. Okay, where right by where the, <laughs> right by where the, the detached garage was. So that confirms uh, my guest. That, I mean, th this is so amazing. And the reason why I wanted you to, to mention specifically that um, detail of the McMartin case is because, you know, bigger picture stuff that I'm interested in, um, narrative control is such a huge part of this. Um, oh, yeah. And I have heard the frustration in your, in your voice on past shows that I've listened to of, of how you go to the, the case details and you look at this stuff and um, you still can can share these these factual pieces of evidence from primary sources, and it's still almost impossible to break through this this narrative, like hermetically sealed shell um, that, that are created around these issues. Um, these really horrific um, potential 
uh, patterns of ritual abuse, um, you know, networks of, of people. And I don't know if you want to talk anything about like Pizzagate or anything like that, but like, again, as an artist, um, I looked at, you know, Tony Podesta's art collection. Um, and I also looked at Tony Podesta's art collection as a father. I have three kids. Um, and I, you know, you have to wonder, I want, I want full range of freedom of expression for people, you know, when it comes to art, but you, you have to look at these images and start to wonder what kind of people collect pictures um, that seem to show abusive power dynamics, um, really concerning stuff. And, and it all starts looking like um, a serial killer who's taking trophies and collecting memorabilia from, from this abuse. Um, as you've talked to people, Ed, you know, you've talked to survivors of satanic ritual abuse, um, correct? And, and, and people that have been sort of primarily traumatized by, by some of these really scary people. Um, as you're talking to different people for, with different perspectives, what has your awareness become like now um, as the narrative control aspect through Pizzagate and of course QAnon, which is, uh, I've heard you get very frustrated about that as well. What's your awareness today about how things stand with um, these topics and the ability of, of media to really control the narrative? Okay, a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if people go to the Opperman Report Patreon, uh, there's a free section where I uploaded exclusively some of Tony Podesta's art that no one's ever seen before. Oh, wow, you're kidding me. I no, I wouldn't know. kid you, man. I wouldn't kid you. <laughs> okay. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. Because uh, what happened was, I, we just happened to be in D.C. visiting my daughter. She goes to school there. In fact, she just went to Comet Ping Pong the other day. Okay? Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Uh, and I have a picture of me out in front of Comet Ping Pong, too, from a few months ago. We just happened to be driving by. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, we happened to go to the Women's Museum. And I'm looking at this art, and it's creepy as hell. And I see from the collection of Tony Podesta. So I took pictures of this stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's exclusive stuff. You're, you won't find this by searching online anywhere else. It's stuff only I found. Wow. So there's that. Now, you mentioned, too, about narrative control. Yeah. One of the things they're able to do is um, there was a movie done about McMartin Preschool. And it was produced by Oliver Stone. Oh, now, that's right. Right. And when Oliver Stone, I did a whole show about this. You could find it. I mentioned James Woods. And I think I mentioned McMartin in the title, one of my after shows, because mm -hmm. James Woods starred in this movie, right? And James Woods has his own allegations against him trying to take 16-year-olds to Las Vegas, okay? Yeah. Uh, but also, too, he's a big advocate for Pizzagate, like you said, and QAnon and all this stuff that Trump was really, you know, rounded up these pedophiles. And that's why, <laughs> that's why he was closing the border down to round up the pedophiles. Oh, yeah. So Oliver Stone was told by Alex Constantine. Alex Constantine, if you're familiar, if you're familiar with his work, that's yes. a legend. Yes. Okay. He was warned by Alex Constantine that, hey, man, the people you're involved with, with this film, producing this film, these Eberleys and these characters, you know, who were involved with the defense, you know, uh, the, they hired away one of the prosecutors to go work for the defense mid-trial. The, 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 the corruption that went on in that case is beyond belief. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. But James Woods and Oliver Stone come out with this whitewash film to brainwash everybody into thinking, oh, it was panic, it was all ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And they have that kind of power and control and they do it over and over again. They did it with the Jeff McDonald uh, film about Fort Bragg murders. Who was involved with that again? Oh, our friend Ted Gunderson. Ted Gunderson, yeah. exactly. And Michael Aquino. Michael Aquino was stationed at Fort Bragg during that period of time. 
Yeah, go ahead. So go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. Now, uh, when we want to get into Pizzagate, okay, there's a lot of hysteria around that. I did the first radio show on Pizzagate with William Ramsey, okay? You did. That's right. You did. And when I did on Reddit, everybody went nuts. Says, look at this. Ed Hoffman has a million listeners. He's talking about Pizzagate. Oh, my goodness. And that's when uh, it came up. I made this offhand comment because we had so many people clicking on that show. Mm-hmm. And I says, you know what, man, if just 1% of the people who watch the show would become a member of my member section, I would have enough money to go investigate this myself and do this and come up with, with a real case, a real yeah. law, a real criminal charges. And after I said that, all these crowdsourced <laughs> guys started coming out of the woodwork all over the place with this brilliant idea of crowdsourced investigations. You really can't do. Yeah. But I have talked to some people off the air. Uh, one guy who claimed that he was threatened by Alphantis. Uh, I have his statement. We actually played his show. Ryan O'Neill is his name. You can listen to his uh, his yeah. uh, when he went to the police. He went to the FBI. They took his statement. Nothing ever came out of it. He's, we've got the screenshots of Alphantis threatening him, threatening his family. We have it. It's wow. not mystery. I have another guy who worked there, and this guy's never been on the air. This is a total statement I've taken off the air. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of very specific allegations, okay? And once again, it never went anywhere uh, where we could get any kind of justice for the guy. But the guy worked there. He's confirming uh, these type of allegations, this type of activity. Wow. That is pretty intense. Um, you know, one more thing, too. We had an, another incident, too, uh, during the Bernie Sanders primary here in Nevada. Okay, yeah, where, that's right. Yeah, where um, uh, suddenly all the Bernie Sanders Facebook pages got shut down because someone was posting child pornography up in these Facebook groups and they were getting reported and getting shut down right before the primary. Okay. <laughs> and uh, when I interviewed the woman who was in charge of one of these groups, she pointed the finger at someone who was once romantically involved uh, with one of these people and had a little divorce. Uh... <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, very well-known name that people would know. There are there are things that you are still not able to talk talk about because of NDAs and and some of the cases you've worked on. Um, I mean, there's there's stuff that you just have to sort of you know keep okay. keep to yourself, right? I'm working on stuff right now today. It's going to blow your mind when it comes out. Oh my goodness, I'm I'm so excited to have you here, Ed. Um, if you would um, be okay with me talking about a case that I am looking into here in Missoula, Montana. Um, but first, I should ask: Have you ever been to Missoula, Montana? No, I've never been there, but I did have a, that Arpel lawsuit involved in Missoula, Montana, and I had a lot of contact with the locals over there. Really? Uh, How yeah, Arpel was being stalked by this guy named Robert A.M. Stevens, okay, who lived in Missoula, Montana. By the way, he had like a 15-year-old girlfriend, too, this guy. He's like 55 years old. And he was claiming all this stuff. He was a Navy SEAL. He was an astronaut. He was a fireman. He was a cowboy, all that stuff. You're so, no, no, no. It's a, it's a hysterical story. <laughs> okay. Wow. And I would be trolling him all day long. And what, what I would do is I would find someone who knew him down there in Missoula. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I would get some information behind the scenes and then I would troll him all day long and then hit him at the end of the night when he was he's in a wasted. Look at this. The guy starts threatening me, right? He says, I'm going to go bury my shotgun out in the backyard because I'm going to come down and kill you. But if I don't, wow. I'm going to wake up in prison. Arbel takes that threat against me and he gets a, a restraining order for himself. <laughs> And I'm sitting out here with nothing but my own, my own guys. Okay. And you were blowing my mind. I would never have thought there was some Missoula connection to a to an Art Bell case that you were working on. That's kind of yeah. the one's kind of mind blowing. But I mean, the criminal justice system—you have seen up up close how corrupt it can be. 
Um, are you are you familiar at all with John Krakauer's book about um, Missoula and the rape sort of rape scandal that was happening here as part of the the campus situation at the University of Montana? And then we had a prominent county attorney. I don't think she was a county attorney at the time, but um, her name is Kirsten Pabst. She is now the county attorney, the lead county attorney for Missoula County. Um, and and so if you're not familiar with that, that's a bit of the history of of her and some of the non prosecutions that that have been happening here. And the, the, the situation that I'm specifically um, looking into, and I won't get into all of the details, but um, a man was assaulted at the homeless shelter where I used to work in on January 3rd, 2020. He was revived by paramedics, taken to St. Pat's Hospital, and was removed from life support two days later without his family being notified, but with the county coroner in the room when it, when it happened. Um, and I have since been investigating this. The man that was um, initially charged or arrested with, with the, for the assaults, um, Johnny Lee Perry, um, the man was quickly released and never formally charged. And it's to this day on the streets um, doing things that I've actually recorded um, that the police don't seem interested in holding him accountable. And so um, I don't know if you've ever come across the idea of like a targeted individual or, or, you know, how law enforcement works with confidential informants. I know there's policies here in Missoula that, that they claim they have to follow, but um, it is such a weird world when you actually start getting into the criminal justice world and the interaction that law enforcement has with like street people, um, prostitutes, you know, meth dealers, these kind of things. Um, so I, I guess maybe a question would be, uh, just in that specific situation of, of a man being removed from life support in a hospital setting without his family being notified and a county coroner being in there. I mean, does that raise a red flag to you as a private investigator that something it, it might, might be wrong with that scenario? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's not the first time I've heard stuff like that either, you know? Right. And, and like you said, you know, a major part of all this is informants, you know? Once a guy's an informant for the cops, they have a whole different uh, set of rules for them. Mm -hmm. And they could be totally in the wrong, harming my client. And out on probation, out on parole. And right. it should be easy to get violated. But because they're, they're a source of information, and who knows whatever other graft and corruption is going around, uh, that they're able to just get away with it, uh, whatever they want to do. Have you seen people get picked up um, in, in ways where it's almost like they're getting picked up and going to jail for debriefing because it's like a failure oh, yeah. to appear and they get picked up or maybe they're like, you know, have a chance to just hang out in jail because jail is not as bad sometimes as, as people on the outside or with no direct experience might think, you know, um, or it's like a protection. They're taking someone out because um, taking them into a protected, controlled environment. So does that ring true? That that yeah, absolutely. And also too, uh, when they're in, if they're being held in there anyway, if they have an open case, mm -hmm. they'll be taken from their housing to court, but but go to with the probation department, you know. Or, right. or, and a lot of times you can see who's present in court and get an idea of who's a rat, who's not a rat. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because the probation department sitting there in court with a guy, you know, he's appearing, you know, and it'll say sometimes in some of these jurisdictions, it'll say who was there, you know, on, on a, who appeared. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and these are the little details that I was really excited to, to try and maybe get, get from you because of your, your long experience um, as a PI. And, and really, it's what initially drew me to you and, and I think gives you such credibility in speaking about difficult topic matters um, that people are reluctant to take seriously. Um, maybe speak a little bit about your Christian faith and your, your Christian perspective a bit for people that 
um, might be surprised to hear that, that you were traveling around in a tent revival um, situation um, many years ago. Can you speak a little bit about that? Oh boy, I want it. <laughs> a long story. <laughs> uh, my whole, uh, you know, uh, journey, you know, with faith yeah. and my relationship with Jesus Christ, it takes like 40 minutes. It's a 40 minute long story. And I've never actually, I, I have a couple of videos where I told it at church and stuff like that, but I've never actually done one yet on my show. I was supposed to do it a couple of times. It just never came through. Yeah. Um, but uh, long story short, uh, <laughs> yeah. long story short, uh, I guess, I was facing 15, I was smuggling marijuana, okay? It was a marijuana smuggler, smuggling okay? Up, okay? Uh, and uh, I was in Arizona one day and I was in a car with this guy. He was giving me a ride. It was a bellman at a hotel in the middle of the night. And uh, we pulled the car over and we prayed the sinner's prayer. But when I prayed, I says, God, I says, I know what he says is true. I know it's real, but I don't want to give up my money and I don't want to give up my crime. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So that's all the negotiation. <laughs> So, and, and you know the story, the parable of the sower, you know, how everything could, can go crazy after that. And it really did. I ran with the bulls in Spain after that. I, okay. I pulled a gun on some cops in my apartment back in New York City. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, this is serious stuff. Okay. Wow. And, and I get caught with uh, a very small uh, truckload of marijuana. <laughs> very small personal amount of truckload of marijuana. <laughs> personal okay. use. Personal use. Yeah, personal use. And it's 30 police units there. Okay. Uh, FBI, Border Patrol, Customs, DEA, is an airplane, you know. Damn. And, uh, so it's facing 15 years in prison. Now, the first miracle happened that night when um, they needed a, a bigger truck to transport this other group that they had taken. So the guy who was the head of the DEA, who was, that was his last case, he was retiring after that uh -huh. case. And I was talking to him, and I said, you know, what am I looking at here? He goes, well, my conviction rate is like 98%, you know, and you're going to get 15 years. So you're going you know, to do nine years of that because it's a point system. You have no way around it. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, but at the end of the night, they needed a bigger truck to transport these other guys. So he says, okay, I'll take them and you take these guys, which means that they transferred our case from the federal government down to a state case. Oh, which wow. means, yeah, it opened me up to all new opportunities to fight the case, to get, uh, um, you know, uh, mediate conditions of, uh, of uh, sentencing, you know. Well, that 98% rate was only in federal court, right? I mean, federal so that's, court. It, it changes the complete landscape. Changes you're looking everything. At. Changes wow. everything. Wow. And uh, so then that's when I, uh, I knew God was getting me out of there. I was in, Las, I was in Arizona. My girlfriend was in Las Vegas. Uh -huh. And so I was in jail for three days. Um, and uh, when I left there, I was supposed to go back to New York, but I didn't. I went to my girlfriend in Las Vegas. And it was on my birthday, September 9th, uh, 1989. And she says, I told her, every, everyone thought I was dead because I was missing for like three days. Okay, so I had to get the word out there that I wasn't quite dead yet. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, so I went to see her and she says, we got to go to church. And I says, yeah, I know. And on my birthday, September 9th, we went to uh, Trinity Life Center in Las Vegas uh, where I gave my life to the Lord on my birthday. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yep. Then um, I left there on Halloween night. We went back to move back to New York. And that's where I found a good um, Assemblies of God church in Staten Island, where I became friends with the youth pastor and this other gentleman who was an evangelist from, from uh, Columbia. And that's where I became baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's when uh, the tent ministry came to town. <laughs> RJ Knight, uh, gospel tent ministry came to town. And uh, I had plenty of free time. I was fasting like crazy. I was down to like 160 pounds praying. It was really intense, you know. Yeah. Bible study. 
and uh, I went to work on a tent. And I says, boy, and this is this is shit because we thought I'd be in jail by the time the tent came, but I was right. still out. And that's when I got involved with the tent meeting. Me and Reverend Knight uh, became very close. There's another couple, you know, living in the tent, you know, and uh, you know, you hammer the tent pegs down and stuff, you know, put up the big poles. It was like boy, living at the circus, you know. I'll tell you a real quick story. We met this guy named uh, Wells, uh, who was this, uh, it was, he, was well, he said he was a, a Muslim, but uh-huh. he was a street guy with a Muslim with no teeth. And he was a real tough guy. And he would say, give me that blanket, give me that blanket, you know, to try and take my, 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 my sleeping bag from me. I said, no, you gotta ask me nice and I'll get your blanket and I'm taking my blanket, okay? And uh, so a couple of years later, I became a member of Times Square Church, Dave Wilkerson, okay, Times Square Church. And about a year later, after I was, uh, you know, my case was settled, I uh, was there at Times Square Church. No one wanted to go to church with me that day. And I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself. And I sat down some uh, seats that were uh, roped off, they were reserved. And who comes sitting down next to me? Wells, okay? And he's sitting there with his wife. He got back with his wife. He's no longer homeless. He's no longer drug addicted, had his kids there. And he got his teeth fixed too as well, okay? Wow. Now with me, I went back and forth with him. Uh, as all kinds of stuff, man. I was gonna work out a deal, I was gonna work for the cops, I was gonna join the French Foreign Legion, okay? I had a whole bunch of different options. <laughs> I had some friends down in the Guatemalan government, they were gonna get me a fake passport and we're gonna take me in down there. Um, but we went along with this case, and, and then I, when I went out there to turn myself in, we had negotiated it down to one year with work release where I could actually get out on work release. And uh, everyone from my church had written letters for me and stuff like that. These beautiful letters, you know, they had all my teardrops on them from reading the letters. It was so beautiful. Oh. And the day of my sentencing, I, we went in there and the guy who I stayed with, the guy who I got off the plane and I prayed to God and I says, God, and I says, you know, I'm so exhausted. Someone's bag has to come off that conveyor belt first. You can make it be my bag. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be someone's bag and my bag comes off first. <laughs> The guy that picks me up at the airport is the bellman who prayed with me in the car. He let me stay at his house. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Then um, I, the morning when I go to turn myself in, there was, there's so many more details. This, but the morning when I go to turn myself in, I was praying in the shower. And time was different, man. Time was slower. Okay. And I just felt such confidence. And so they drove me down into the court. They dropped me off. And I says, you know what? I feel pretty confident. I see my lawyer who had been up and down with me for all this stuff like this. Man. And I see him and uh, we had breakfast and we're sitting there and he goes, Ed, I'm gonna go back and talk to the judge. And I says, okay. So I'm sitting in the courtroom all by myself. No one, my lawyer's in the back with the judge. There's no court officers, no one. I'm in the courtroom all by myself. So I stood up and I was praying in tongues out loud in this courtroom all by myself, bro. <laughs> then it all comes back, uh, my lawyer comes back in. And the, the judge comes in, the bailiff comes in, the other you know, people. And we're sitting there, and then I see they bring out all the prisoners, all these guys in their orange jumpsuits. And I said, oh, great. These are the guys I'm going to be hanging out with tonight. <laughs> these are my new friends. <laughs> and I look over at the, my lawyer, and I says, dude, what about like, rehab? <laughs> what about you? Can you get me in rehab or something? Man? And he goes, Ed. I was back there talking to the judge. I got some good vibes from the judge, but don't sit there looking cocky. <laughs> and I says, all right. The prosecutor comes out and it was a different prosecutor I'd never seen before. And she says, 
well, Your Honor, you know, we know we agreed to one year with work release with this defendant, uh, but you know, you could give him more or you can give him less. We wash our hands of this defendant, Punches Pilot. We wash our hands of this defendant. Okay. Oh, oh. And right after that, the judge starts talking about my probation report, which was full of freaking errors, man. Made no sense. It was totally all wrong. And I'm sitting there saying, oh my God, what's going on here? He says, all right, we're going to give you one, uh, five years probation and you have to pay $250 restitution and you have to return to, to New York City. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> Me and my lawyer jump up. We run to the fucking elevators, man. And we're hitting the elevator button. And I looked at him. I says, dude, I says, you know, that was God. And he goes, Ed, somebody up there likes you. <laughs> somebody up there likes it. We went, to, I had to go do a probation and go visit the probation department. The whole place was talking about it. This guy who had a thousand pounds of marijuana and got probation. Okay, man. Uh, this is a lot more involved in all this. And my lawyer too, uh, we had put some bail money through my lawyer's name and he gave us that money back. I just found that letter recently where he returns the money. <laughs> I just did this big move. So we found a whole bunch of old paperwork and stuff. So, I mean, my, the image I have in my head is that the Holy Spirit had you by the shoulders and was slapping you back and forth, back and forth. Like, is this enough for you to like be aware that there are forces beyond you um, moving, moving in your life? That is amazing. That is holy cow. That whole year was a series of miracles that, that everyone was talking about at the church. They prayed over me to uh, gave me the authority of an evangelist to go into prison and preach the word, you know, all kinds of stuff. I was, I was, I was in their full-time ministry for, for a long time. Wow. I, I, I now better understand the strength that you draw from in the work that you do. I mean, that just, it, um, I had a similar experience last year where I finally asked out loud for help and my mom had been imploring me to do it, you know, and I'm kind of a cynic and I'd been drinking alcohol um, as a self-medicating sort of pattern of the tortured artist cliche. It's really fucking stupid, but it was a pattern I'd fallen into. And I had an experience with a Lego piece that was this, this kind of miracle for me. And um, one of the things I'm actually gonna ask you about now, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of synchro mysticism, um, but just, I mean, the idea of synchronicities in your life being a sign of some kind of spiritual language or spiritual movement. Um, are you familiar at all, Ed, with yeah, synchro mysticism? I think they also call it a divine predestination. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different I, phrases you can sort of apply to it. But one of the things that I've been felt recently within the last like week or so kind of motivated to do is to potentially speak to Christian congregations uh, I'm doing some fundraising for like podcast, local podcast efforts um, and trying to, you know, expose some corruption here. And it's going to take some some financial resources. And I have a connection now with a fairly conservative church, but I've really been thinking about this idea of non-traditional spiritual awakening um, and, and trying to build some bridges between um, people that might have some some, you know, not like non-traditional spiritual beliefs that that um, might help us all understand what's happening right now because the spiritual aspect of what's happening seems to be so present in the lives of the people that I'm meeting. Um, that's the strength that I seem to be seeing in other people um, that they are finally like shedding. Sh you know, I haven't had a drop of alcohol since July 5th, 2020. Um, and that's been one of the, the miracles in my life that, you know, I am not relying on that, on that crutch anymore. And my goodness, what I see happening in my life is so much more miraculous now um, I don't black pill my, myself every night with uh, the Boda box of cynicism. Right. So, 
It's amazing. I, I'm so glad you shared that story with me, Ed. I really, I really appreciate it. And I do look at the time and see we're getting um, close to, to being about an hour. So I wanted to check in um, time-wise to make sure that you're still okay um, if we can chat a bit longer. But this, we've covered a lot of material already. <laughs> We did. We certainly have. <laughs> you know, I tell you, you know, I, I was very fortunate that uh, Reverend Knight was really tuned into the gifts of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. You know? And um, so, you know, things that I would talk to him about, I just had an understanding of, you know, and uh, and also to Gary Robitelli, too, who was uh, one of the other guys in the tent ministry. They're very tuned into the spirit and the gifts of the spirit. And I saw real miracles at the tent meetings, man. I saw real, you know, and it, it just became something to expect. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you, you see a, a amplification or escalation in these small little miraculous things that are hard to quantify for maybe people outside of right. th that, but, but they're happening and they're real. Um, I guess one question I would have for you, Ed, um, do you see the, the phenomenon of QAnon hijacking the sort of Christian discernment that was being applied to some of this um, topic matter we've been discussing today, because I, I know that you're aware of the potential PSYOP application of, of QAnon. Um, and have you seen that had a detrimental effect among sort of the Christian discernment that, that people can, can hopefully still bring to the subject matter? Does that, is that a, make sense yeah. to you? Well, yeah, on a couple of levels, because first of all, I'm pretty sure that Aquino was involved in QAnon. Oh, you think? Well, that would make sense. That. Yeah, we did some real, because uh, that, that guy uh, that he co-wrote that uh, manual. Of, Mind uh, War. Right, right. That guy is heavily involved with Jim James Corso. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and you know, it's uh, we can get into a lot of stuff. <laughs> a friend of mine was living down there in the Philippines with the pig farmer and all those guys, Hawkins and his characters. You know. Oh wow. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, so, I, yeah, I kind of get the feeling there was definitely some. Did you see that special documentary done by HBO? I still haven't. I have um, some friends that are harassing me because I haven't um, seen it yet. But the the four chan eight chan aspect right. is pretty interesting. And I'm not sure if you're aware of like Gary Lackman's work with his, his book Dark Star Rising, but yeah. he he talks about like chaos magic and um, how Pepe the Frog became this meme and Keck and and all of this weird interesting stuff that you know I certainly you know take seriously to the extent that I I will look at it and read these books and and be pretty fascinated by it. But um, you sound like you're familiar with uh, Gary Lackman's work in Dark Star Rising. Yeah, I had Gary Lackman on the show. Oh, and, you did? Okay. Oh, yeah. And and if you listen to the show, too, because we hung around the same circles down there on the Lower East Side. Okay. It was all, that's where all that was going on. Uh, uh, CBGB's, uh, Studio 10, uh, Bleecker Street, uh, oh, the that's headquarters. Right. That's where all that stuff was, right? You know, so when we, we were talking, you know, uh, I, we have to know some of the same people, for sure. Right. Because I know Blondie did come down to Studio 10 because after CBGB's would close, that would be the only place open. Yep, yep. Wow, and it is a small world, so you have to you have to wonder. And, you know, the fact that Missoula plays a bit of a role in the cultural production, um, even today, you know, we have David Lynch uh, has some roots here. Uh, we talked a bit about Eddie Vedder. Uh, Pearl Jam, you know, has Jeff Ament, who lives in Missoula. He was from Big Sandy, Montana, where John Tester, our senator, is. And the, the politics in the town like, like Missoula right now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like tax increment financing. I certainly don't want to talk about, talk about that right now. But, um, you know, it's been interesting looking at the, the, the corruption locally and, and just how um, 
how soft power can function in a, in a small town and how you don't even know the, the social networks that are involved in, in protecting people sometimes until you start poking. Um, you know, I've, I've had some people try to gaslight me behind the scenes. There's a you know, tactic of, of depicting dissenter, dissenters as mentally ill. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to see some of that in, in my work trying to expose local stuff. Um, and so it's just been interesting to me um, to, to be more familiar than most people with people like Michael Aquino, psyops, disinformation. And, you know, I've listened to you long enough that you were right shoulder to shoulder with some weird people in some of the radio shows that you were doing. Um, these, this like the LARP wars and these, these, you know, I mean, it's just such a, a messed up soup of, of weirdness. Um, and through it all, you have kept this rational, dis- but also spiritual discernment. Um, and so I just want to thank you for all of the work that, that you've done. Um, you've really helped people like me sort of stay grounded in this, in this weird subject matter that I think is really critical more now more than ever to in, at least engage with. So thank you so much, Ed. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, as I'd like to encourage you, because yeah. um, if you can get yourself on an AM station over there in Missoula, right, just find a couple of sponsors to get you on there, okay? Because it's yeah. cheap. It's cheap to get on. And then you can start picking your own candidates, who you want to promote, people you see young and give, let them do interviews. They've never been interviewed before. They learn how to do it. Yeah. You know? And let me tell you something, man. In Nevada, uh, all my people uh, now control the Democratic Party. We have card-carrying socialists running the Democratic Party in Nevada that are people that I handpicked from my show. <laughs> well, you guys had Victory Fund um, Clintonites um, in, in Nevada too, right? I mean, there was that anti, anti-Bernie anti contingent and the stuff they did with uh, the caucuses was... Oh just awful i just played a show the other day with my people getting arrested oh. the, yeah, the, our dele- bernie delegates were getting arrested and we broke in live on the air wow that's right we picked this up at like forty thousand views <laughs> okay well you know, the democrat the democrat control structure is pretty interesting because neoliberalism is and gentrification are some of the engines animating missoula we're we're mm-hmm. one of these like my, my podcast is called zoom town because we are one of the zoom towns where people with um, wealth can now work remotely in these, you know, amazing right. fly fishing river runs through it, you know, landscapes. And, and so money is just flooding in right now. And it's making all of these other dynamics that were bad, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, even worse. Um, and, and so it's been a real challenge, I think, just to uh, try and get some narratives that, that counter our, our diminished media landscape, our, our weekly independent folded because uh, Lee Enterprises, the, the corporate uh, media entity, bought it up and then trashed it. Just we shuttered it and took the archives offline. So we can't even like get digital archives. I mean, there's, there's ways to do it, but yeah. um, it's, it's more difficult now than ever to get counter narratives. And with the Democrats in Missoula, um, you know, you have this victory fund, which was the, the money laundering uh, mechanism for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, that that sort of establishment really runs the statewide party, and we're one of the few uh, states that actually went from a, a Democrat governor to a Republican governor. Um, and it, I'm in this weird transition myself of just you know wanting to preserve certain rights for my my own choices. You know, when it comes to health, and I don't want to get into that big crazy topic, but um, it's just such an interesting time right now um, to to be in this place in Missoula where you know as an artist. A couple of years ago, I wrote a poem that was critical of our local political establishment, and I got a, a visit from a city council member at my place of work. She was also a board member there and had to go through an HR process before um, I decided to not sue them. 
Um, mm. But I, I've experienced political retaliation locally. And this is from like the Democrats that once upon a time I thought were for like civil rights and like free speech. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. Wait, don't get me wrong. I'm not a Democrat. Okay. Well, I, know, I know you're not. I know you're not. I know you're not. But the thing those... is, my point is always, is yeah. when our guys got into when, when our guys right now control the DNC in Nevada. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And when we got in, the hacks deleted all the information off the computers. That's how. And, 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 it was so hopeless, okay? In 2016, when they screwed us over and they robbed us blind at that, at that convention, at the caucus, okay? Yeah. All we could do was on a Saturday, go out in front of the DNC offices and write chalk on, on the floor and on the walls and the windows. And even that, they, they said we were terrorists, okay? And now we're inside those buildings. We're inside them. We command those buildings, <laughs> okay? You're making a great point that the persistence and local grassroots activism really did produce change for you and your community. And you have you have a big role here, a big responsibility because you're an articulate guy. You, you talk, you already got a following. Well, Get yourself you. on AM radio, man. It's it's not that big a deal. You can do it. That's a great idea, and I'm going to explore that option yeah. because uh, the, I mean, the podcasting. Every every asshole now has a podcast, and so right. there's a. Um, a over proliferation of this content now. And so it's hard to kind of get your head above water and, and get noticed, um, especially with all the deplatforming that's that's happening. Are, are you interested in pursuing like Rockfin or some of these new platforms? Is that something that you've looked into for yourself and your content? Uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I have enough of a base and I'm yeah. chugging along here. Uh, Patreon, you know, is a, a godsend. But yeah. then again, they, they just shut down OnlyFans. So who knows what they are. <laughs> Who knows what's going on out there, what, what they could do next. Uh, Ed Opperman, did you have an OnlyFans account? No, but I'm saying that, you know, if, if OnlyFans could could cut out their whole base of income, right. <laughs> you know, a sweep of a pen, that was insane. Well, how familiar are you with the idea of stakeholder capitalism and this idea of um, sort of the technocratic movements of um you know, the, the big term is transhumanism, but um, yeah. is that something that's kind of on your radar at all? Well, I, I think uh, uh, when you start talking about transhumanism, a yeah. lot of that is just hysteria. You know, and you talked a bit, bit earlier too about uh, um, targeted individuals. You know, yes, uh, I've, we've been in the PI business. You know, I've sat around with some real old timers. You know, mm -hmm. uh, way back in the seventies, and we would get calls at the office. This woman was convinced that McDonald's was behind the 1976 blackout, okay, or the 1979 blackout. Right. And more they're talking, you know, so a lot of these people, you know, it's a, it's a huge operation to have that, that kind of 24 hour surveillance on somebody. It's a cost of fortune. So, and I've had a lot of people come to me and I've really never been able to uh, uh, verify a case like that. But on the other hand, we, the NSA exists. They do record everything that's typed and everything that's spoken on the phone. Okay, right. they have ways of recording things in your room, in your house, using wall outlets, using the receiver on the telephone. There's all kinds of stuff. But I'm convinced I'm tapped all over the place. Okay, I wake up yeah. in the morning, you know, all my settings are changed on my studio. You know, so yep. it's by accident. Uh, so there's that end too. But are they targeting every molarian and curly out there? I don't think they are. And I think a lot of these guys with these podcasts and stuff like that, I think these guys are all uh, either being manipulated or they're in on it. You know, some of the bigger ones, we know they're in on it because they've yeah. been, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a strange world we find ourselves in. And, and one of the, the terms I just keep on coming back to is discernment. Um, mm -hmm. I really think you just have to do that inner work first, um, find your own grounding so that you have that um, that armor to go out into the world and and really engage with it in a way where 
you know, you can stay somewhat positive, but also be skeptical. You know, that phrase trust, but verify is another one I like, um, because I, I want to take people uh, on face value for the most part until I'm given evidence otherwise. But at the same time, I've worked with enough people that have personality disorders and, and, and you can't necessarily trust where they're coming from. Um, and, and so many of those people gravitate towards halls of power, whether that's corporate America or politics, you know, so you just have to be very aware. Um, and you are someone that has helped, I think, people increase their own awareness in their lives of those forces that um, are out there. So, again, fantastic work that you've done and, and you've taken a full hour to, to speak with me today um, on a Saturday, nonetheless. So um, I'm, I'm going to be smiling for the rest of the day over this one, I think. Uh. Well, thank you very much. I, I did enjoy it, uh, Travis. Thank you for, for having me on. Well, and I re really encourage people to, to, to check you out. Um, I, I paid for like a three-month access to your archives. There is so much stuff that's not just out there publicly available. Um, you mentioned your Patreon accounts and, you know, the Podesta images, art, art, this crazy art collector. Uh, I'm going to be going and checking that out. Um, but I would really encourage people um, to, to support the individuals that are doing the work like you are doing because it's not easy. Um, there are consequences people experience in their personal lives because of it. Oh, yeah. um, and I just, you've been one that I know, I, I would not be here right now if it wasn't for listening to, to you and all the amazing people that you've been able to interview and, and bring attention to. So, um, and I've also spent a lot of money on books because of listening to you, Ed. So my wife gets a little annoyed that I keep on buying all these books, but I'm just like, hey, this is important stuff and you have to have the hard copies of the books. You can't trust the digital stuff to always be there, you know? Okay, okay, but now that you've got a podcast, man, you can email the, the uh, what do you call the publishers and ask for a free copy of the book. Oh, that's right. I need to take advantage of this kind of stuff now. Yeah, man, yeah. Man, I'm so glad I had you on because now I have a lot more little, little tricks yeah. of the trade to employ in my own life, so. Well, Ed, if there, is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners before we um, wrap up for the day? Well, just like I said, like on the Patreon, the Opperman Report Patreon, there is a lot of free content. I got the uh, Larry Flint uh, FBI document dump on there, oh, cool. uh, which is just mind blowing. I have uh, all kinds of stuff. I have the raw uh, press conference of that guy with the Hunter Biden's laptop, the computer repair guy. I have uh, they were, the, one, one of the guys there in the room shouting at him, you know, interrogating this guy, uh, sent me the raw recording and said, Ed, this has to get out. And, <laughs> and I don't know if you know about my work I've done with the Hunter Biden laptop, but I got the whole thing all put together about the, the whole chain of custody on that laptop and how it came from Keith Ablo and, uh, and, and DEA. Oh. Yeah, it's all there. You look up the Bradley Birkenfeld interview uh, the Samantha Spiegel interview and all the stuff connected with the uh, Hunter Biden laptop. That's a great story. Wow. That is a, you're just a, a wealth of information. I will mention something before we wrap up really quickly. Um, Hunter Biden has that uh, tattoo on his back of the finger lakes. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. It's, if you look there's images um, where, where you can see it's, it's the finger lakes. It's very odd. And I didn't really think much of it, but my kids are obsessed with watching The Office. They love it. I, I finally bought all of the, the all nine seasons on DVD. And so they're just watching it constantly. And there's this episode where they have a bunch of cameos and Jim Carrey has a cameo, a very weird one. It's very short. And all he really does is he says, I have to get back to the Finger Lakes. People disappear in the Finger Lakes, you know, like, you know, my family doesn't know I'm here. They don't know I'm gone. It's very strange. And, and it's just one of these things that's like a data point I just throw out there. But, um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes about uh, what these what these people um, in power do for fun. You know, the hunting yeah. parties maybe they have, you know, 
it's just it's a data point to consider. Like so. John Ramsey, John Ramsey used to go to the Finger Lakes. Is that oh, the, really? I think that sounds familiar. Or it was a different island. May have been a different island, but it's, it's different. Okay. maybe like Michigan. It, it's it's one of these things just to kind of consider um, as as we try and use discernment in this in this strange new world that we live in. So. Well, Ed, thank you so much. I am going to go ahead and, and, and wrap it up. Um, would you mind maybe staying on just for a few minutes afterwards? Sure. Okay, awesome. I'm going to go ahead and stop recording. Okay, there you have it. My interview with Ed Opperman. And I, I do recall now that I listened to just the ending of that, um, that Ed stuck around a bit after I recorded or after I hit stop on the on the record of the Zoom. And I did talk to him a little bit about the, the TI topic that I hope to get to at some point. Um, his perspective was definitely helpful. One of the questions that always comes up is, you know, why would resources be utilized to, you know, harass sort of low-level people? And um, again, Dean Reiner has been doing some amazing work and, you know, some of the, the interviews and, and disclosures that, that he has facilitated um, maybe maybe answer some of those questions. So, so stay tuned for a later topic, later episode of, of ZoomCron on that topic. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Next week, I'll be putting something up. Maybe old, maybe new. It's almost Christmas time. Almost end of the year, so. Adios for now.